Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day. What's up, Chicago? I'm Aaron Allen. Good morning. And this is The Rundown. I welcome everyone to this confirmation hearing on the nomination of Mr. Judge Chairman. Brett Kavanaugh. Mr. Chairman. To serve as Associate Justice. Mr. Chairman, I'd like Supreme to be recognized for a United question States. before we proceed. Mr. Chairman. It feels like over the last several years, the Supreme Court has been front and center in the news. And that's both outside of the courtroom. Luxury vacations for a sitting Supreme Court justice, all provided by billionaire GOP megadonor. And definitely on rulings made inside of the court. The Supreme Court has affirmed same-sex marriage is the law of the land. It's a constitutional right. The Supreme Court is made up of just nine people, and they have a lot of power. The Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. They have eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. But how did the court get all of that power? When do they get to use it? And is anybody pushing back? WBEZ is spending the run-up to the 2024 election looking at our democracy. A part of that is demystifying all these institutions that often feel so mysterious. All in an effort to make participating in the democratic process a little more approachable. Today, the focus is on the highest court of the land. How would you characterize SCOTUS's role in our democracy right now in 2023? It's a major one. <laughs> That's me talking to Sarah Konsky. She's the director of a clinic at the University of Chicago where law students and the university represent clients in cases in front of the Supreme Court. Pro bono, you know, for free. She's also a law professor at the university and a Supreme Court expert. She's here to talk about how the court worked at the beginning and how it works now. Our Constitution, of course, um, contemplates three separate branches of government. We have the legislature that's making the laws, the executive that is doing a number of things, including administering the laws, and then the judicial branch that's headed up by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is deciding what is constitutional under our federal constitution, interpreting federal laws, and um, weighing in at the moment to your question on a lot of the very important social issues of our time. Those nine justices, um, they have a lot of power, as you said, like the Supreme Court has a lot of power, is headed up by these justices, but they haven't always had all that power. I wonder if you can get into how that has changed over time. And I'm talking about, you know, since this, all these branches were established. Start at the beginning. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, so, so Article 3 of the Constitution provides for a Supreme Court. And it wasn't immediately clear after the founding what that judicial branch was going to do. They were not in, you know, a giant building or or deciding the most important cases of the day at the time. They were often in, like, shared office spaces and other buildings in the early years. The justices were <laughs> riding circuits, meaning they were going around the country in their horse and buggies to decide cases. So it started off much more modest than what we think of as the Supreme Court today. 
Over the next 200 years, though, you've had this dramatic increase in, in its role in government and its power. The first big step you hear about in like your 1L law school classes was this case called Marbury versus Madison in 1803. And in that case, the Supreme Court held for the first time that it had the power to determine whether acts of other branches were constitutional. You quickly did see the court getting involved in or grappling with the tough social issues of the day. Mm -hmm. There was a case called Ex parte McArdle, um, where Congress feared that the court might declare parts of its Reconstruction Act to be unconstitutional. So it stripped the court of its jurisdiction to decide those cases. Um, Or when we get to the New Deal in the 1930s, the Supreme Court was ruling against FDR's New Deal legislation mm-hmm. um, and in 5-4 decisions. So FDR threatened to pack the court and yep. add, add justices, <laughs> right? Um, and the, the court then um, did what's referred to as the switch in time that saved nine. So one of the justices who was in the five-justice majority switched the other side. Um, and, and the court started to hold FDR's legislation constitutional. And FDR kind of withdrew his court packing um, movement at that point. So you see these kind of yeah. moments in time where the yeah. court's um, grappling, I think, with its role um, vis-a-vis the other branches. took a while for the branches to kind of get to the place they are today in the relative power. I think scholars largely would say that we see the modern court um, first come into what we recognize today in the Warren Court era, which was the civil rights era. And Warren being the chief justice at the time. Yeah, exactly. Warren being the chief justice at the time. Starting in the 50s, that's where we see the big cases. We often think about like Brown versus Board of Education, where the court said that separate but equal schools are not equal and not constitutional. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, from desegregation to integration to all these other sorts of issues. So we have a system where the court really is exercising um, a new kind of power judicially. Over our history, we've seen kind of more tuffling between the branches, if you will, when um, they disagree with the court. So, you know, Congress has, you know, the power of the purse to set the court's budget, to decide how many justices are on the Mm -hmm. court, um, to make certain changes to the jurisdiction and and the cases the court can take. And it's exercised it over time. Um, You know, the executive, as we saw with FDR, can threaten to do things like pack the court or, or to push for court reform. Um, it does seem to me that the Warren Court is more where we see this court start to take action without those sorts of movements by the Congress or by the executive getting the same sort of traction they did at earlier points in our history. We've seen a similar kind of continuation of the court along that path. And at the same time, um, we've seen a conservative shift in the court over time as well since 1970. Only five of the justices have been appointed by Democrat presidents. Um, so you've had you know, many more appointees by Republican presidents culminating now with the current Supreme Court with six Republican appointees and three Democrat appointees. And how do justices on the Supreme Court decide what cases to take? There's a process called petitioning for certiorari where a party who has lost in the federal courts of appeals can petition the court. Um, It's basically just filing a brief that says, here's why you should take my case. Um, You know, a lot of the times you're saying it's because the federal circuits disagree or because this is an issue of utmost importance. They get 
I think current statistics are somewhere like 7,000 to 10,000 of these a year. And um, they can decide which ones to grant and deny. Um, The court in pre-COVID years was taking, I think it's around 80 to 100 cases a year. Now in post-COVID years, we've been lower. This year's around 60. Um, But they have a discretionary docket. So it takes the vote of four justices to take a case. Um, And and that's how it gets there. So... Four, four out of the nine. So that's a minority. But if there's four that that say we should take this case, then there it is. Right. It's called the rule of four in the Supreme Court. And yeah, four, four votes gets you a cert grant. Okay. That's what we're aiming for, folks, if you ever want to take something <laughs> for, to the Supreme Court. Um, okay. So once a case does go to the Supreme Court, they make a decision, um, that's a precedent setting, right? How can one case kind of set that precedent. Talk about that kind of precedent setting process or what that what's behind that. Sure. So so um the notion of our judicial system is based on the decision of cases and controversies. So, you know, the courts in the business of deciding live cases. So a dispute or or a disagreement about something that is actually, you know, matters in a given case. But you're exactly right. We also have in our judicial system um, built in this notion of precedent. So um, the decision in the case will, of course, bind the parties in that case. You know, if the court says the Fourth Amendment requires X, that's what the Fourth Amendment requires, and we apply it to the facts of that case. But then, as you um, suggested, it also has broader precedental effects, where um, not only are we going to apply it in that very case, but we're going to apply it um, in cases going forward. Under our system of stare decisis, um, the presumption is that, um, and the strong presumption is that we're going to keep applying that until something changes. So, mm. you know, it, it makes for a more efficient judicial system. You know, mm. if you had the court revisiting an issue in every single case, you'd never get any certainty as to what <laughs> the law meant. Um, you know, but there's also um, throughout our history a question of how we should look at precedent and the role of precedent. Um, mm. You know, the court has certainly reversed itself, um, you know, most most recently and, and notably, I think, for many of the decision in Dobbs, you yes. know, um, uh, that was essentially overruling the previous decision in Roe. But, you know, throughout our history, we have other examples of that as well. Um, you know, before the court decided uh, Brown versus Board of Education, saying um, that separate versus equal is, of course, not mm. equal. We had yes. you know precedent going the other way in the late 1800s, saying, of course, separate but equal is fine in, in Plessy versus Ferguson. So, mm. um, you know, it, it, it's been a struggle, um, um, or not a struggle, but I guess a question throughout time of, you know, when and how a court should revisit precedent. And we're, we're certainly looking at that now as well. Yeah. Once... The precedent it's is set. There's that, and it kind of has these implications for future cases, but it's not still necessarily a law, right? Right. I mean, the the the, the court isn't legislating. It's you right. know, it is um, interpreting the Constitution, interpreting um, um, statutes, you know, whatever it's looking at. Um, but it is not like an act of Congress where you have to go pass another act of Congress, perhaps, or, yeah. or do something like that. You know, the court um, also has some discretion to decide when to revisit precedent. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've seen in some of the court's recent opinions that they, they seem to have different opinions on when we should be um, revisiting yeah. what, what is settled uh-huh. case law. So 
the court is not legislating, but there is an effect, <laughs> right, of 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 the cases that they decide, right, and the president that they sit. Yeah, in our, in our yeah. system, um, you know, the court's not passing the laws or not um, administering the laws. It's really doing the role of interpreting um, both the laws and the Constitution. Okay. But our judicial system kind of centers on this idea of binding precedent. So once yeah. they've said or uh, interpreted the constitutional provision, we, we think of that as binding precedent. For the first time in American history, the Supreme Court ruled that when the Second Amendment says there's a right to keep and bear arms, that means a right to carry a handgun outside the home for self-defense. The Supreme Court dealing a major setback to public sector labor unions. The court said mandatory union dues violated First Amendment rights. The ruling overturns a nearly 40-year-old court precedent. Last week, the Supreme Court reversed a century of law that I believe will open the floodgates for special interests, including foreign corporations. To spend without limit in our election. Let's come back to kind of our, our present day and and really get into how much the Supreme Court is really top of mind right now. I mean, for me, like a part of it is that I'm an adult and I'm just more like, you know, engaged. <laughs> but this is a time and I'm thinking about the Supreme Court more than I ever have. Right. Sure. sure. Um, for instance, I can name a few justices off the top of my head, which never would have been true 10 within the last, you know, 10 years ago. So it feels like the court is a big part of our public consciousness. Can you talk about guess that maybe how that's come to be? That's a great question. Um, I think there are a number of things going on here that are kind of interrelated. Um, the first is that in in recent terms, we have just seen an acceleration of the court taking on cases on really important social issues on which people are really divided. So okay. you know, we have abortion, we have affirmative action, we have guns, we have religion, we have voting rights, you know, all of these um, major social issues mm-hmm. um, are, are coming up before the court. And, um, you know, people... Um, I think rightly are paying attention. So that that that's one thing. Um, you know, at the same time, um, as a second factor, we have a big change in the composition of the court. Um, so for uh, much of the last two decades, we had a court um, that um, was more kind of balanced ideologically um, um, and. Um, uh, than the current court. So we now have six. Um, justices who were appointed by um, Republican presidents and only three justices who were appointed by Democrat presidents. Um, and, you know, scholars um, calculate kind of where the court is as a partisan matter in a number of different ways. But one of the headlines that got a lot of attention going into this term was a study that, you know, um, decision-wise, the, the the recent decisions of the court were the most conservative in 90 years, right? So we're um, on, on a number of metrics and a number wow. of um, folks are saying um, that we, you know, just have a shift in the court. Um, it's still early in this current term, um, you know, that the court has yet to issue a lot of decisions. So, you know, it, it's hard to... Um, paint a broad picture based on, you know, one year of decisions or two years of decisions. But there's this notion, I think, um, that's getting picked up that this is a more conservative court in a lot of meaningful ways. Um, As a third factor, we increasingly in our 
political system have a have a system where there's gridlock in other branches of government. So, um, you know, if if, if um, Congress wants to pass a law, it's not as easy as it used to be in, in many ways. So I think the court is ending up with more disputes that might have ended up in other branches of government in um, in, in, in a less gridlocked um System, and then um, I think as a result of those all those things, we're we're just talking about the court differently. It's coming up in political campaigns. It's at the center of presidential campaigns. Um, more media attention, uh, more social media attention. All of this, so we think um, people correctly are just paying more attention now than they were before. I'm thinking too of like the justices that have recently been appointed too. I mean, that's you know those two those two things also got big and a lot of attention for very different <laughs> reasons. Yeah, the, the confirmation process is completely um, different than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, even um, in, in more recent years, Justice Scalia, for example, was a, a confirmed unanimously, if I'm recalling correctly, and um, Justice Ginsburg near unanimously. And now, um, you know, the votes are um, much closer to party line votes on all of the recent Ah. nominees. And we also have um, um, we've had a number of controversial appointments and confirmation processes in the last um, few years that have resulted in people paying more attention to. Yeah. Let's talk about reform. Um, As we've discussed, the court has a lot of power in the hands of. Not merely nine people. <laughs> what are democracy experts saying? Like, is is this fine that these people have all this power? Well, the simple answer, I suppose, right now is it depends on whether you agree with what the court's doing politically. Um, I think okay. <laughs> um, there are some people who think the system is working perfectly. There are others who say, of course, it's not working perfectly. And, um, you know, that, like many other things, seems to break down on party on lines. party lines. We are divided um, right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is... is um, uh, as a practical matter, the court has grown a lot in its power and influence and role in government. Um, I'm not sure if the framers had foreseen what the court would become, that it would have designed the appointment process and confirmation process and everything else, you know, exactly the way it has. Um, you know, there's been calls for thinking about things like life uh, tenure and, and whether we should instead have term limits. Um, um, thinking about other types of, you know, court um, reform efforts, adding numbers of justices, which has happened over time, mm-hmm. changing the jurisdiction of the court, you know, what cases they can and can't take, which has happened over time. So there's certainly a lot more discussion about these topics. President Biden appointed a Supreme Court um, commission to examine kind of the history of the court and some of these um, potential areas for reform, oh, uh, wow. reform, and they issued a really interesting um, and detailed um, report on on you know both both history and policy and practical um, considerations. It's a political matter. It's tough. You know, those who think there should be Supreme Court reform are typically of the party that's not the majority on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, politically, it's going to take either Congress or a constitutional amendment to to accomplish some of these things. So there there doesn't seem to be, at the moment at least, a realistic, in my view, path um, in the shorter term toward, toward any sort of um, reform of those sorts. Interesting. Um, with so much focus on the court and what the court is doing right now, 
Um, and then with a lot of fatigue, news fatigue, just fatigue over everything that gets decided all the time that affects our lives. How would you say we should be thinking about what happens with the Supreme Court? So you're right that there's a lot going on right now yes. and a lot of information to digest about um, Supreme Court decisions and the Supreme Court um, one important thing um, I would say folks should be doing is is keeping up to date on important cases and issues that are before the Supreme Court. You know, if you're a citizen who cares about abortion or affirmative action or guns or religion, just understanding, you know, th- just those few examples of cases that have been before the court Thinking recently. about the things that you value. Yeah, thinking about the things that you value and understanding, um, you know, the legal landscape. You know, maybe yes. that's that you really agree with the Supreme Court decision and you're very happy about it. Maybe that's that you disagree and you want to think about, okay, if there's not you know, this constitutionally protected right at the federal level, what are the other avenues that we can be pursuing, you know, politically or otherwise? So to just understand, you know, the legal landscape. Um, I, I would also say that one of the reasons our politicians are talking about the court so much is that, you know, appointments are by the president in power. Laws are passed by the members of Congress in power. So the importance of voters voting with these sorts of issues in mind, I think, is also important. And you know, the Supreme Court is certainly a very important part of our judicial system, but there's also a lot of other courts doing a lot of other important business. In Illinois, we elect judges, so make smart decisions when you're going to the polling place and looking at that really long list of judges yeah. for election and for reappointment. But, you know, just making smart decisions on judges, understanding what our you know federal courts are doing, all that I think is a really important part of the story as well. Sarah Konsky is a clinical professor of law at the University of Chicago, and she's the director of the university's Supreme Court and Appellate Clinic. Thanks for your time, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Each month leading up to the 2024 presidential election, we will have conversations like this as a part of Chicago Public Media's Democracy Solutions Project. You can learn more about that project at WBEZ.org. And that's it for today. Thank you to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Cleve for editing the show. Haley Bloomquist was the engineer for this episode. And our theme music is by Louis Weeks. And we love to hear from you, the person who is listening. What questions do you have about our democracy and how it works? Email us your thoughts, questions, and what you want to hear at therundownpod at wbez.org. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. 